It wasn't until earlier this week that I remembered that I have a free ebook from a company that gives away ebooks every week, and I never look and see what they are. All kinds of um, all kinds of devotional books and theological books and commentaries given away. Uh, to try to get you to buy more, of course, right? That's the, <clears throat> that's the goal. And all through Kings, I was using as my, as my main uh, commentary, a commentary by a man named Dale Ralph Davis. And it just so happens that last year, somebody told me that the free commentary that week was volume two of the Psalms by Dale Ralph Davis, which happens to include Psalm 33. And so I get to keep using Dale Ralph Davis in my preparation for this sermon this morning. Now I know none of you know who Dale Ralph Davis is, but there's a couple of key facts to know about him. One, he wasn't writing in the 15 or 16 or 17 or 1800s. He was writing in the 1900s and 2000s. So this is a modern commentary. Now, if you were to look through my library, you'd find modern commentaries. And if you were to ask me whether I liked any of them, I would just say, no, 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 no. They're all useless. But Dale Ralph Davis is not useless. And so you'll see how different he is when I read you a quote later on um, from his commentary on Psalm 33. What is this what is this psalm about? Well, it has a very, very famous verse in it, part of a verse. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Blessed is the nation whose God is Lord. You might see that on uh, cross stitches in people's homes or bumper stickers on people's cars or various other places. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And this referred, of course, at the time that this psalm was written, to the people of Israel, the nation that God had chosen out from the world, not because they were amazing, but because they weren't amazing. Not because they were something special, but because he wanted to make them something special. And so they were blessed because God had chosen them and he was their God. Israel is no longer the nation of the Lord. That can sound sad, but it's actually something that's very joyful because God has chosen a much bigger nation now. He has chosen a people from all the nations of the earth, and this is why... The Great Commission says, 
go into all the earth proclaiming this good news. And so he's calling people from every tribe and tongue and earthly nation to make one holy nation that we are a part of. And so, when you see it on a bumper sticker, I know it's talking about America, calling America to be a nation of the Lord. And that's appropriate to call America to be God's. Every nation ought to serve the Lord. But there is no nation on earth that this psalm is referring to besides the church of Jesus Christ, which in the Old Testament was the people of Israel, God's holy nation, and now is us, Jews and Gentiles, no longer separate, but one, one in Christ Jesus. And so this psalm is to us. This psalm is to God's people. And right at the beginning, verse 1, we're given a command. In fact, we're given several commands in a row. The first six lines of this psalm all start with an imperative. Now, some of you kids can sing a song to tell me what an imperative is. But don't sing the song, please. It'll be stuck in my head and I won't be able to preach. What is an imperative? Can anyone tell me? I see that zealous hand over there. Go ahead, tell me, zeal. It's a sentence that gives a command. That's right. And so, look at the first six lines. I don't know how this is broken down. Can you put verse one up there, Hugh? The first few verses of Psalm 33 for us. Oh yeah, it's broken down perfectly. You see them there? See the first word on each of those lines? Sing. Give thanks. Oops, I skipped one. Praise. Give thanks. Sing. Sing. Play skillfully. We've got six commands to start this psalm off. And it's clear what we're supposed to be doing, isn't it? We are to be giving ourselves in praise to the Lord. Now, <clears throat> it's always the case that you can sing in your heart and in your mind, right? But you don't know what I'm singing, do you? And so when we obey this command, it's visible, isn't it? Really? It comes out of our mouth. You can see and hear that people are singing. And you can praise God to yourself in your heart, remind you of the things that he has done for you. But that's really not what this is talking about, is it? When it says praise, praise is becoming 
to the upright. Now, I guess that technically you know that that's... None of you kids should be confused here. I'm, I'm stretching things. That's a declarative, right? Not an imperative? Okay. But if we're going to understand this, we know that when it says, is becoming... It's saying it is good for us to do it. It's telling us to praise. If you're upright, then praise. It's good for you to do that. And so we are to speak, call out, tell what God has done. How do we praise him? We tell what he's like. Isn't it remarkable that God is so wonderful and perfect that all you have to do to praise God is say, God is holy. And that's praising him. You just say what he's like and that is praising him. You can also say what he has done. Now that makes a little bit more sense to us. Because when somebody has done amazing things, we like to tell others about them, right? You should have seen it. He was on the second yard line, but on his side of the field. <laughs> and he ran it all the way to the end zone. And we're praising that amazing act, right? Well, God has done amazing things, and so when we talk about them, we tell other people, we can't help but be praising Him because of how great the things are that He has done. And then when we remember the things that He has done, we can't help but give thanks because He has done things for us. He has given us life and breath and time to serve Him. He's given us work to do. He's given us loved ones. He's given us a family and a church. So the first three verses just reiterate what we're to do. We're to make all kinds of noises, singing noises, Talking noises, praising, giving thanks noises, and they're to be joyful. They're to be with instruments, lyres and tens, harps of ten strings. They're to be new songs. They're to be skillful with, with joy. Shouts of joy, in fact. All of this is what we are to do. And that verse 3, sing to him a new song, I, I love that because it's, it's impossible for believers not to be making new songs to the Lord. Christians, when they see what God has done, when they remember his holy name and his great works. 
they start breaking out into song. Now, not all of us can write songs, right? But probably more of us than you think can write songs. And, and the reason I know this is because you look at the kids when they're three, five, seven, they'll just start singing random songs that, they've, that they're making up right then. And it's a glorious thing to see overflowing out of them the joy and gladness and delight they have at life. It's just life flowing out, overflowing, right? How could they not sing? They're safe. They're warm. They're fed. They're delighting in the puzzle, the toy, their doll. The life that they are able to live. And it's only as the burdens of life pile up that we lose the ability to write new songs, isn't it? We get too self-conscious to make up new songs and what do, we, what do we sound like and, they, and it won't rhyme and it won't make any sense and... but you know if you get back to the faith of a child and you remember what the God we serve has done for us then yeah you, you'll sing a new song so Christians have always been writing new songs, singing new praises to the Lord. And they're all, they're all old praises too. Nothing new under the sun. What we say has been said by many countless saints before us. And what is it? What is this reason that we've been given to sing, to praise, to give thanks. Verse 4 tells us, 4, which tells us the why, right? For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. Now what I want you to see there first is that verses 4 and 5 already have some repetition of words just like verses 1, 2 and 3 we've got this repetition of this idea of praising, singing to the Lord. Verses 4 and 5 actually connect back to verses 1, 2 and 3. The word of the Lord is upright verse 4 says, verse 1, the second part, says praise is becoming to the upright. So we've got the upright showing up both here and there. And then verse 5, he loves righteousness and justice. And who is called to sing praises in the first verse? Oh, you righteous ones. Righteousness. Now, if you think about this, 
The psalm could end right here. Some psalms are this short. It makes sense just right here. What are we to do and why? We've been given both. We're to sing praises. We're to give thanks to the Lord. Why? Because of the word of the Lord is upright. All his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. He loves righteousness and justice. That's particularly comforting to people who are righteous. Oh, you righteous ones, give thanks to the Lord because he loves righteousness. Oh, that's good. I have been righteous. I am righteous. He loves righteousness. That's wonderful. I could sing about that. Who should praise? Who is praise becoming to? The upright. You know what else is upright? The word of the Lord is upright. The word of the Lord is upright. Now a lot of this psalm is about the word of the Lord. The things that we have in written form, handed down to us in His Word, in the Bible, the Scriptures. This is His Word. In fact, this psalm is part of His Word. By the Word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the breath of His mouth, all their host. Now, I want to skip forward a little bit and show you some other places where the word of the Lord is talked about because that was verse 6 I just read. Verse 4 we already saw. Verse 9, he spoke. What is that talking about? What? His what? I still didn't hear you. Yeah, his, that's right. He commanded the same verse. Again, it's his words, right? Verse 11. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. Now, you might not think the plans of his heart refer to the word of the Lord. It's not... It's not necessarily obvious, but it is speaking of his word because you know what he does with his plans? He speaks them into existence. And so the plans of his heart are the word of the Lord. And so we have the word of the Lord spoken of in several places throughout this psalm. And it's the very first part that we're given, the very first reason that we're given for all of this praise, all of this singing, all of this shouting joyfully, 
the very first reason we're given is because the word of the Lord is upright. There are, well, I've already, I've already started to talk about all the reasons why, why we might praise the Lord. But for his word to be upright might be hard to understand why we should praise him. Okay? His word is upright. Okay, what does that mean? His word is upright. Sounds good. Well, one of the things it means is it hasn't fallen over. <laughs> right? It's, it's upright. Now, that's not the main meaning, but it's, but it's essential to the reason we can use the word upright and be talking about goodness and righteousness, that it, that it stands. And evilness just falls over. It doesn't accomplish the plans of the Lord, and therefore, it will be wiped away in the end. But the word of the Lord is upright. It's holy. It's true. It stands forever. And then what the word says is not just good, but good for his people. And since it is sure, since it is upright, that means that we can rely on it completely. We can rely on the word of the Lord completely. Is there anything else that you can rely on completely? Sometimes when we talk about faith, we use a picture of a chair. Right? And you sit down. You have faith that the chair will hold you. Now, have any of you ever sat in a chair and had it not hold you? I have. Okay. <laughs> Sometimes our faith is misplaced. Sometimes we put our faith in the wrong things. My father sat on a board that was laid out between two logs last week or the week before. And, uh, you know, that, that board had been out there too long. And it was rotten. And it just, bloop. It didn't snap and crackle and break. You know, it just sort of softly gave out, you know, like rotten wood does. God's word never gives out. It never rots. It never gets soft. It never snaps unexpectedly. It never has too much weight resting on it. We can never put too much of ourself, too much trust onto God's word being true, being solid, being there for us. It will always hold. And so it's wonderful. The word of the Lord, the breath of his mouth. What has he done with those things? 
It's not just that the word of the Lord is upright, but by that very word, verse 6, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts, the stars, he speaks, and there are stars. We recently watched one of the episodes of uh, that um, wasn't Blue Earth. What's the what's that? Planet Earth. Yeah, we we recently watched an episode of Planet Earth, and who who's the who's the narrator for that? David Attenborough. Yeah, and you know his voice is perfect for it, right? And and. He speaks, and it's almost as though the animals are listening, right? It's almost as though by his word, the, the feathers on the bird open. But you know, this man reads off a script. He watches it ahead of time. And then he decides what he's going to say. But you know what God does? God speaks and he makes the earth. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord only because God said, let the heavens be. Let the stars fill the firmament. And so they do. His very word makes it come to be. Could you ask for anything more glorious? He spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. You remember the waters standing up? As the Israelites walked across on dry land, he commanded and it stood fast. They could trust his word to hold back the waters. And they did. In fact, verse 7 he gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. Just imagine that. I think I'll take the water now. It's not in a bowl. He does what he wants with the water. And what does he do? He lays up the deeps in storehouses. <clears throat> and so what were we to do? <clears throat> Not just us. Verse 8, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. If you look and you see what he's made, if you look at the results of his word spoken, existence, his command, it happens. How could you not fear him? How could you not stand in awe of him? All the earth, all the inhabitants of the world. 
For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. His plans is what we're seeing there, right? His plans happening. Now, I've had a number of children that are very scared of dogs. And really of anything that looks to be alive and has its own will, right? Because who knows what that thing is going to do. So sometimes that's a dog, and sometimes that's that remote-controlled or self-controlled robot vacuum cleaner, like, wait a minute, I don't know about that thing. It's doing what it wants. I have no control over it. What if it decides that it wants to hurt me? Right? God isn't just this power. God has a will, a plan, and he's accomplishing it. It's one thing to see the power of the ocean beating against the shore. It's one thing to see the waves crashing against the cliffs and the spray flying up. It's one thing to see a storm and to, to see miles and miles of water standing up and lightning and thunder coming down. Right? The power that's displayed is fearsome in and of itself, right? But then to see that God has control of all of it and that God has all that power and much, much more and that he has a plan and to see ourselves as like a little baby standing next to a great big German shepherd. You know, that We don't have any power in this relationship, do we? There's this other entity that has all of the control, all of the power. And the power is overwhelming. Fear him. Read this quote from Dale Ralph Davis now. And you'll know why I love him so much. A God this mighty and massive should stir a proper response in his world. All the earth should be afraid of Yahweh. All the world's residents should feel dread of him. Those are the be afraid of and feel dread are his translation's words. Okay, so he's quoting verse 8. Please, he continues, don't anyone spout nonsense like, this doesn't mean we should be afraid, just that we should have reverence. No, you should be afraid. You should feel dread. It should intimidate you. Seeing his work in creation should buckle your knees. And then it may produce reverence. 
but don't try to bypass the fear and trembling with your canned pastel explanations. Nobody writes like Dale Ralph Davis today, except Dale Ralph Davis. There's no commentaries like his because everybody's trying to come up with pastel words. But there's no pastel in this psalm. It's all power. It's all God. And God is not pastel. His authority is happening in the world right now. His plans, verse 9, right? And then verse 10, we've got this great contrast. Our plans are what we read of in verse 10. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. Our plans just don't hold up. God's plan, it holds up. His word is upright. Our plans, not so much. And then verse 11, it comes back. The counsel of the Lord, it stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. So whose plan? His plan or our plan? His plan. His plan is happening. And you know what? It's a wonderful plan. It's a wonderful plan. What is his plan? What are the plans of his heart? There's this clue here from generation to generation. From generation to generation. What does that have to do with God's plan? Well, it's, on the one hand, it's just saying his plans keep happening, right? All through time. It's not like they happen once. It's not like he just made the sky and then stepped out. Out of the room, out of the world, out of having a plan. But there's something else to it. Because this is where we hit verse 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. So there's something about his plan that's being revealed in that next verse. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. Oh, this is his plan. That from generation to generation, there will be a people that he has called for himself. In fact, he's going to make those people his own inheritance. Now, do you want to be the inheritance of the Lord? Of course. But are you good enough to be the inheritance of the Lord? No. It's ridiculous that we would be the inheritance of the Lord, isn't it? So what is his plan? To take sinful people and leave them sinners and make his inheritance a bunch of sin? 
his plan that he's accomplishing from generation to generation is revealed to us all through his world, all through the Bible. I forgot my Bible this morning. Can I borrow yours? I want to read to you from 1 Peter 2. Listen to verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the plan of God that he is accomplishing from generation to generation. And it, because it's his plan, is it going to happen? It's going to happen. What more could we ask for? His plan is a people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. He's making us holy. He's calling us out of the kingdom of darkness into his glorious kingdom of light. He is cleansing us and making us from not his people into his people. Just like he did with Israel. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. So he does with us. Chooses us. Calls us out. Changes us. Makes us new. Verse 13. The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. And remember that, that goes back to verse 8. Let all the earth fear him. Let all the inhabitants of the world sit. Now what does he see? He sees all the sons of men. From his dwelling place, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He doesn't have to wait for the earth to rotate to see the backside. Now he just, he looks at all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them, he who understands all their works. This is who's looking at you, at me, at your neighbors, at everybody. He's looking. He made you. He made your heart. From his dwelling place, he looks out. He sees all the sons of men. And then what? Verse 16 says, The king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a false hope for victory, nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. What is that talking about? What does that have to do with the Lord looking out, seeing the hearts of men? 
the Lord is judging. And you know, we might think that we can put our hope in a mighty army, our great strength, a horse. All these things are things that stand for what you would normally think you can put your hope in, right? Today we might be inclined to think <clears throat> our, great, our great medical care, right? Any number of things that naturally we know are helpful. An army is helpful for a king. Horses are good. They're strong, right? None of those things will save when the God of heaven looks into your heart. You can't put a horse between God and you. He still looks right into your heart. And so, in verses 13 and 14, it's about God seeing everybody, right? Verse 18 gets more specific. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. Now, this is meant to be comforting to us. On those who hope for his loving kindness. Now, I'm going to remind you back in verse 5 that the earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. And so, do you hope for his loving kindness? It's everywhere. Look around. Can you not see it? And so the who, the Lord looks and it's scary to the world, right? But to us, when the Lord sees and beholds us, we who are upright, we who fear him, we who hope for his loving kindness, verses 19 and 20 says, to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. There's a contrast between these two nations, isn't there? There's the world, and then there's the nation of God. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Because his eye is on us, and that's wonderful. And you couldn't ask for anything better. And you notice that change? It's first talking about those who fear him, those who hope. He'll keep them alive in famine. And then all of a sudden, he switches to the first person. He says, it's us. We, our. Verse 20, our soul waits for the Lord. He's our help, our shield. Our heart rejoices in him because we trust in his holy name. This God that all of the nations should tremble and fear. That no armies or horses are going to save. No amount of strength prevents God from judging. And so you've got that contrast between the world and the nation of our God. And then you've got the contrast of what is going to happen. 
nothing will save the king. Nothing can make the plans of the nations stand upright. God's plan will stand upright. And you've got that contrast between what he is going to do. Verses 19 and 20. He's going to deliver his nation, his people. Praise God. And so, the psalm ends the way it began. Our heart rejoices in him. Verse 21. We trust in his holy name. Let your loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us according as we have hoped in you. So who is the nation that is blessed? The nation whose God is the Lord. His royal priesthood. Us. Those who have hoped in him. That's who makes up his nation. Those who have put their hope in him. Not those who are putting their hope in their own plan. Not those who are intent on getting their own will. Not those who have put their hope in the strength of their body. Not those who have put their hope in anything besides him. But if we have put our faith in him, then what more could we do besides breaking out in joyful song? 